Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Oh, come on, that was funny, right? <clears throat> it's okay to laugh in church, isn't it? Um, and I think it is funny, you know, we, uh, these different movies that kind of portray the, the awkwardness and even the comedy of trying to figure out how to pray in the words that we are to use when we do pray. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's good to laugh about such things. But when you think about prayer... On the surface, it should be one of the simplest things that we do in the world, like breathing. It's a moment of silence. It's a, it's a, a cry for help. It's a sigh of disillusionment. But even though I think for most of us we sense the importance of prayer, I think the reality is that prayer can seem like one of the most confusing things and even the mo- one of the most futile things that there are because, I mean, it, does prayer actually work? I mean, is God actually listening to us when we pray? Is there a formula that we're supposed to use that we don't quite yet understand or know so that we can get God to do what it is that we want him to do? Last week, we started a new series that we're calling How to Pray, a simple guide for normal people. And my prayer and my hope is that as we go through this series, that it will kind of help us to redefine and to renew and to reinvigorate our relationship with the Lord. And so over the next several weeks, I want to try to demystify this topic of prayer, this thing that if you've been a follower of Jesus, if you've come to church, then you kind of know that this is something that we do. It's something that's all throughout Scripture. Uh, We talk about it. You hear people pray, you maybe you're expected to do it at the Christmas table or at New Year's or Thanksgiving. I mean, prayer is just one of those things that we talk about, but I think it can become a little bit difficult, or I think there's so many things that make it a little bit more complicated. And so over this series, what I'm going to try to do is try to break this down just a little bit into a simple guide for prayer for us normal people. And so if you don't consider yourself a studied theologian, if you don't consider yourself a Jedi prayer warrior, then I think this series is for you, because if you, you still would like to grow in your relationship with the Lord and kind of go deeper that way, then I want to kind of take us on this journey here together and really kind of explore what this is all about, what it means to pray. Now, last week I mentioned that, that for so many of us, prayer can end up just being this cry for help. Um, but the reality is that that prayer needs to go beyond just this cry for help. I think a lot of times that what prayer, that's what prayer can be reduced to very quickly is that we're just always asking for help. And so you have a test coming up the day, and so your prayer becomes, you know, help me, God. You know, you are meeting with a, a, a difficult client, and so your prayer is, God, help me. Your car is spinning out of control and your prayer gets even shortened, just help. Or you're called by the principal because your son um, got in trouble in class and was supposed to go to the principal's office, but instead went and hid out in the boy's bathroom for the entire day. That may or may not have happened to one of my sons. And your prayer is, God, help me. For a lot of us, I think this is what prayer can be reduced to, is just this cry for help. As I mentioned last week, there are ways of praying that are more like exploring than imploring. And I think we need to understand there's just so many different trails of prayer. And I mentioned this last week that 
I think it's important for us to understand that none of these, these trails of prayer are actually going to force God's hand. That's just not the way prayer works. There's no superior one way to pray, which means if you're looking for the Holy Grail, if you're looking for the magic words to have so that you can get God to do what it is that you want him to do, then you're going to be sorely disappointed because that just is not the way prayer works. But as you set out on these different trails of prayer, God is going to join you in on this journey because even though that terrain of prayer may be a little unfamiliar or maybe even confusing for you, Jesus actually gave us a map for the purpose of showing us how to pray. It's the world's most famous prayer. You know what it is. What's it called? The Lord's Prayer. It's up here on the screen. Can we say this here together again here this morning? Say this here with me. The Lord's Prayer. Say it with me. Maybe. There it is. Here we go. Say this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now think about this, because Jesus gave us this as a map for the very purpose of teaching us how to pray. And I mentioned this last week, that the Lord's Prayer, or this prayer map, can actually be broken down into this kind of four-step rhythm using the acronym P-R-A-Y. Pause, rejoice, ask, Yield, pause, rejoice, ask, yield. These are the four sections in the Lord's Prayer. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at this first idea of what it means to pause. Yes, we're going to talk about being quiet, being silent, stopping all the crazy activities that so many of us, that's how we live our lives. Psalms 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. This is God speaking to us. Be still and know that I am God. This is the first step in our, if you're wanting to grow deeper in your prayer life, this really is that first step. Put down your wish list and wait. Sit quietly. Be still. Become fully present in place and time so that your scattered senses can, be, can kind of recenter themselves in God's eternal presence. Stillness and silence actually prepare our hearts and minds to be in that place of a deeper peace and a greater faith and adoration. Blaise Pascal who was a 17th century French mathematician and, and physicist and theologian, he said in his pensée, he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Think about that. All of man, humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I wonder when it was the last time you just sat quietly, just being still, nothing else happening around at you. There's an awkwardness too, isn't there? Pete Grieg um, describes the human soul as wild and shy. The psalmist describes our souls as a deer panting for streams of water. In Celtic folklore, our souls are depicted as a stag that appears noble and cautious. It hides away from the noise of life, refusing to come on command like some domesticated pet. But when it is still, it emerges inquisitive and unsteady, but very much alive. 
Maybe you can identify because I think there's just so much in our soul that kind of fights between this desire and this need of being still, but yet a lot of us, we're still running around like chickens with our heads cut off. That's more of a description of how we tend to live our lives. And so that's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 7, King Solomon, he describes that in prayer and life, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. I think we forget about that, don't we? There's a time to be silent. There's a time to speak. And just as the prophet Elijah experienced, if we want to get better at hearing the one who speaks in a still, small voice, then we actually have to befriend silence. Look at this in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Listen, everybody. If we're going to host the presence of the one who says, be still and know that I am God, then we must ourselves become more present. Because I think we expect God's voice to boom like thunder, but mostly he whispers. We expect him to come into our lives wearing these large hobnailed boots, but instead he tiptoes and he hides in the crowd. We expect God to be strange, but just like the, the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr describes, he comes to us disguised as our life. Isn't that interesting? An interesting description of how God is. And so the best way to start praying is actually to stop praying, to pause, to be still, to put down your prayer list, to surrender your own personal agenda, agenda, to stop talking at God long enough to actually focus on the wonder of who he is. Psalms 37 verse 7 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, how many of you parents have ever experienced this scenario? Maybe you've gone, been gone out of town for a day or two or for a week, and you, you're coming home and you're excited to see your kids. But instead of your kids running up to you and giving you hugs and kisses, you're greeted at the door with all of this bombardment of questions. Daddy, what did you bring me? Daddy, did you give me a present? Daddy, Billy hit me. Daddy, Jamie won't share with me. You know what I'm talking about? Come on, parents. You wanted to, them to acknowledge your presence before they start bombarding you with all of these questions and problems. You wanted them to look into your eyes and simply acknowledge that you're there and say, Daddy, welcome home. When you think about it, I think this is what Jesus was trying to show us right here at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Before we launch into our lists of all the things that we need and that we want from God, our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, the deliverance from evil, before we do any of that, he tells us just to pause, to address God affectionately as our Father, to address him respectfully as hallowed be Thy name. 
See, without this first step of pausing, I think prayer just simply becomes just the extension of this frenetic way that we tend to live our lives, the manic expression of how we tend to live our lives in a distracted and a driven way. And then without introduction, without any sort of slowing my pace or even lifting my face to meet his gaze, I run full force then into the presence of God, the courts of God, demanding all the things that I need and I want. The reality is that true prayer is not so much what you say, nor is it something that you do, but it's actually something that we become. It's not transactional, it's relational. Which is why prayer begins, therefore, with this appropriate awareness of the one to which we have come to. That's where it actually begins. Now, have any of you heard of the parable of the deranged greyhound and the wild dog-eating chair? Have you heard that parable before? I'm going to read it here to you. The parable goes like this. The tranquility of Guilford's picturesque cobbled high street was shattered one Sunday morning by the yelping of a dog and a strange metallic clattering. Suddenly, a crazed greyhound came scrabbling around the corner with its whippet tail between its wild legs, weaving between shouting shoppers, frantic with fear, and hotly pursued by one of those cheap chrome bistro chairs. The chair, which was attached to the other end of the dog's lead, seemed alive like a dancing snake, weaving and flailing, striking and biting at that terrified animal's rear. Perhaps the dog's owner was still inside and unaware of his pet's plight, innocently queuing for coffee. A movement must have made that chair twitch, which had made the dog jump, which had made the chair leap, which had made the dog scamper, which had made the chair pounce, which had made the dog yelp, which had made shoppers shout, which had made the dog run even more frantically, pursued all the while by this terrifying piece of metal and these crowds of screaming, grabbing strangers. The faster the dog ran, the wilder the chair's pursuit, the higher it bounced, the harder it pounced, the louder it banged and clanged and zinged on the cobbles. And for all I know, that dog is still running still. You know, I think every single one of us, this can be a description of our lives. We end up becoming just like that deranged greyhound, driven and disoriented by all sorts of irrational fears, pursued by entire packs of bloodthirsty bistro chairs, too scared to actually stop and see what's actually happening in our life, to have any sort of perspective at all. I think this is a great description of how most of us live. This chair tends to reflect most of our lives, contrary to really the chair that we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to that message because this is the chair that we're supposed to sit in. But too often, this becomes the chair that describes our lives. Now, I want you to think about this, because why is it that I think so many people today are finding themselves drawn to the simplicity of marathon running or, or long-distance cycling or fishing or the practice of mindfulness or yoga or really the nation's, nationwide movement of decluttering, which has become a nationwide billion-dollar um, industry, why, why are so many of us, why, why do we binge mindlessly on Netflix and Candy Crush, crush and the, the endless scrolling through our social media feeds? 
It's a description of our society here today. But I think one of the reasons why so many of us are drawn in these directions is because we're increasingly attracted to activities that will put the world's relentless demands on hold. So that we have a moment in time where things are just a little bit simpler. Anything to get away from these pesky bistro chairs. And so we hide ourselves in these different things that kind of are taking our time. But God is trying to describe that he does things differently for us. Because what God does is he speaks firmly into the cacophony of our scattered lives and all the activities that are going on. And he commands the dog to sit. And he speaks to the storms in our lives. And just as the psalmist describes, he actually makes me lie down. Think about that, Psalms 23. He has to make us lie down. And so when we do so, perspective is then restored. And terrors turn back just simply into bistro chairs. We get a better perspective of what it is that's nipping at our feet. Look at this in Psalms chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Lord, how, have they, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help from him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory in the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, from the Lord, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people, Selah. Now, I want you to notice something about this psalm and all the times it uses the word Selah. It's actually, Selah is used 71 times in the book of Psalms. And it's because the Psalms were initially written as music to be sung and to be played. And so the word Selah was a technical note to the musicians and the singers to pause, to stop. And so Selah is this instruction of pause. It's the instruction to weigh the meaning of the words that you're singing and you are reciting. So again, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. Stop. Think about it. Ponder the meaning of that and what that means for your life. This is the essence of really what Jesus was telling us to do in the Lord's Prayer, to just simply start with your prayer time by sitting or walking silently for a few minutes. You don't have to go long, but just for a few minutes just to start by pausing without saying or doing anything, to train your brain to switch off from all the abstractions and the distractions of life and to become more fully present and aware of God's presence in your life. See, everybody, God understands our deep need for stillness. He understands our need for order. He understands our need for freedom from all these responsibilities that we tend to carry because he's the one who designed this in the first place. And right from the get-go, God himself rested and established a Sabbath right at creation, inviting each one of us to press pause regularly and to be still and know that he is God. The Latin word for be still is the word vacarte. It's the word that we use to describe um, vacating a place or taking a vacation. Think about that. 
And so God's actually inviting us when he says, be still and know that he's inviting us to take a holiday. He's inviting us to take a vacation. He's inviting us to be leisurely, to be free, because it's in this context that his presence is actually known. Some of you, you're trying to figure out where is God in all of this. His presence is known when you set pause in your life. In the stillness, in the silence, that's where his presence becomes known. And so you actually could par- paraphrase Psalms 46, verse 10, be still know that I am, know that I am God. You could actually par- paraphrase that to say, hey, why don't you take a vacation from being God or pretending to be God and let me be God instead for a change? And maybe that's how you need to hear it today, where God speaks to you and say, hey, why don't you take a vacation from pretending to be like God? And let me be God in your life for a change. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, life's basic decision is rarely, if ever, whether to believe in God or not, but whether to worship or compete with him. He's so right, isn't he? And when you think about this, this really is the main difference between you and God, because God doesn't think he's you. But how many times do we act like we are him? And so moments of stillness, what they do when you're starting your prayer time with these moments of stillness, they actually become these moments of surrender in which we stop intentionally competing with God and we relinquish this Messiah complex, the Savior complex that we have in life and where we resign from trying to save the planet and everybody else in our spheres of influence and we stop expecting everyone and everything else to be orbiting around our preferences and we recenter on the presence of the Lord and the priorities of the Lord and we acknowledge with a sigh of relief that we are not in control, but he is. And much to our surprise, and when we do that, we realize the world is still spinning. Even without us doing all these things where we think that we are in control, that God is still working even without our help. And slowly then our scattered thoughts start to become more centered. And the bistro chairs finally settle down and they just become bistro chairs. I think this first section of the Lord's Prayer is hard for so many of us. It's so hard to kind of downshift our lives to stop, to pause, to actually be silent I think there's so many of us in this room that even when you get in your car, you can't stand for there to be silence. You got to turn the music on. You got to listen to the radio. You got to do something because silence can be terrifying you. And so I have a challenge for you here this week. I have a challenge for you to incorporate pause in your life. And your challenge is specifically this, and I'm going to kind of give it to you in grades. But I want you to try to pause at least sometime during this week. Maybe it's just five minutes. Well, you literally just pause, no music, nothing else. You just pause in silence, just be there in that moment. Maybe that's all, maybe it's just once. I want to, maybe you're you're a little bit better than that. So I'm going to say, why don't you take every single day, make your intent to have one moment in the day to pause. Just one moment during the day, maybe it's just five minutes sometime in the day. Maybe you need to put a reminder on your phone because it's just not part of your schedule. Actually put it on your phone And put it as an alarm that goes off, and you have five minutes, be silent, do nothing else. Now, if you're brave enough, I want you to do this this week. 
This means we're going to have to carve out some time, but this is really my bigger challenge for you. I want you to, if you can, find time, and that's what it's going to take, time to be silent for as long as it takes. Because here's the thing. As soon as you try being, you try being silent, you know what happens? Your brain is going to go in a million directions, and thoughts are going to be all over the place. One of my favorite things to do is take people on a spiritual retreat, and one of the first things I like to do is to create this moment where all you do, there's nothing else. You can't pray, you can't write, you can't do anything, but just be present and be silent. And maybe for you, you can do that, and all this, you, your, your, your mind goes crazy for 15 minutes, and then it stops. But if you've never done it, the reality, it may take you an hour and a half before your brain stops. It may be three and a half hours before your brain stops. But here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. It will. It will stop. When you don't make it a regular process, then your brain is just going to go all over the place for a long time. But what you need to know is that it will stop. And so my challenge for you is actually try it. If you can carve out some time to, for however long it be and just be silent. Don't try to control your thoughts. Let them go all over the place. And they'll go and they'll go and they'll go and they'll go and they'll go. But they will stop. And here's the thing. When it stops, there's something absolutely powerful that happens because now this is where God meets you in that place and time. His pre- you become more and more aware of his presence when that happens. Remember, he's found in the silence, in that stillness of our souls. We're going to go back into worship here in just a few minutes. But as we're preparing to do that, you know, we're talking about pause. And I want to kind of usher you into this space just a little bit. And on Monday, we, this last week, we had early morning prayer every day. And, um, and, and so on Monday, I led that group into kind of an exercise like this. And I want to kind of do it with you here too. Because what I want you to do is take a moment here, not just to go through the, the, this, the motion of church, but actually create a pause moment for you to reflect on just who God is in your life. So I want just to ask you to close your eyes, if you would, please. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through Scripture and remind you of who God is. Because one of the things when you're reading your Bible, and if you're starting out this year and reading Scripture, one of the things that you'll discover is that God actually reveals to us who he is. He introduces us to himself. And so I want to remind you here in this moment, just who God is. And as I describe him and who he calls himself, I want you to kind of ask them, okay, what does that mean for me? And just reflect on it. Have that Selah moment. In Genesis 16, he describes himself as El Roy, the God who sees me. In Genesis 17, He describes himself as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, the Lord God Almighty. In Genesis 22, he is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. In Exodus 15, he is Jehovah Rapha, my healer. In Exodus 17, he's Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my miracle. In 
In Exodus 31, he is Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord who makes you holy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he is Kana, the jealous God. In Judges 6, he is Jehovah Shalom, God is my peace. In Psalm 18, he is El Salai, God of my strength. In Psalms 23, he is Jehovah Raha, the Lord my shepherd. In Psalms 24, he is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. In Psalms 51, he is Adonai, God is my Lord and master. In Psalm 57, he is El Elyon, the most high God. In Isaiah 7, he is Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 9, he's the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 26, he is El Olam, the everlasting God. And Jeremiah 23 is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And Jeremiah 23 is Jehovah Shammah. God is already there. In John 1, he's the Word. In John 4, he's the Messiah. In John 6, he's the bread of life. In John 8, he's the light of the world. Also in John 8, he is I am. In John 10, he's the door, the good shepherd, the son of God. In John 14, he's the way, the truth, and the life. In John 15, he's the vine. And Titus, He is Savior. In 1 Peter 2, he's the chief cornerstone. And in Revelation chapter 5, he is the Lamb of God. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.